listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting this program. To find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin, go to our website, kfuo.org, and look for the CUW logo in the sponsor section there. The Lutheran Witness. October issue 2017 celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is our topic today and looking at uh, another great article in this issue today's article by Dr. Paul Grimm Reverend Dr. Paul Grimm he's the Dean of Spiritual Formation and Dean of the Chapel at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne and author of this month's issues article Luther's Hymns True or False Dr. Grimm welcome to Faith and Family Thanks very much. Glad to have you with us today and talking about uh, uh, singing and Luther's hymns and uh, the, the, the role of music and, and congregational singing, uh, things that, um, well, that, that get me all riled up and excited. I love uh, congregational singing, so I love talking about this today. Particularly, though, let's start with your work at Concordia Theological Seminary. Yes, I've been here now for 10 years. I'm, as you mentioned, the dean of the chapel, and so work with our two musicians, our cantors, to, to make sure that our worship life here at the chapel is, is proclaiming the gospel and doing so in a way that reflects upon the rich heritage that has been handed down um, through the centuries in the Church, and including also then the wondrous gifts that the God continues to give us in, through musicians and poets in our own day. So what is the role that hymns play in congregational singing, and we can probably talk about that throughout history. Uh, what what is it today? What do you teach when it comes to uh, congregational singing and, and hymns today? Well, anything we have to say about it will undoubtedly at least have to pay homage to Luther and and to recognize you know, what he kind of gave to the church when he began the task of of putting the word of God into song. He wasn't the first to do it, but he I think recognized very clearly that the opportunity to, um, to drill that truth of the Scriptures deeply into our hearts and to embed it there is, is, a, is a role that music can play in a unique way. Uh, Luther will talk about the beauty of, of, of melody, and he'll mention the birds that you know, can create some beautiful songs. But he says it's only given to man to be able to, to bring the Word of God to that melody, and the two together form quite a, a power in one sense, in that it, it allows us to be able to, to grasp a text and, and to hold on to it very dearly. People who've listened to you know, songs in the radio can quote lyric after lyric without ever, ever seeing them written down, simply because they've heard those melodies and they, they learned them over time. And it's been that way with hymns, and it continues to be that way. In some ways, singing has, has become rather a countercultural thing to make music on our own. I mean, we have music thrown at us all the time. It wasn't always the case, you know, before the age of, of transistor radios <laughs> and now iPods and whatever else out there. Uh, we, have, we used to make music on our own. Uh, but even still, the Church is insisting, and I think the Christians continue to recognize the value and importance and want to insist themselves that they sing the faith, so to speak, because it does allow the very words of Scripture and, and the, the truths of the Scriptures to be on our own lips rather than just having it spoken to us. It allows us to sing it to each other and to ourselves, and obviously praying to God through all those hymns as well. And so t- taking together all of these different aspects of, of, of that corporate singing, uh, you know, the body of believers gathering together, still remains a pretty important force, I think, to be reckoned with. You made an excellent point that uh, historically, singing and, and the role of music was significant in the home, 
and in the church, and it was something we did together. We weren't a uh, the performance wasn't uh, wasn't a performance for us. We've become an an entertainment focused culture, but the 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 role of music in our lives has certainly changed over uh, over generations. And it's uh, what have we lost in that since music has become more of a performance and entertainment rather than the something that happens together in the home as a family or in the congregation together. Well, one of the things we've lost is the ability to make music. Hmm. I mean, the number of people who can read music in this age is, is just considerably less than it used to be. The you know, In our own community here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, there's just been a recent push by uh, some some business people who have had a strong interest in music to make instruments available to kids in the schools. And they're hoping to add 500 instruments available to the rental pool for students to, who cannot afford to rent or buy an instrument to have available so that they can also participate in band and string programs. With the recognition that, that even just in, on a very secular level, the making of music makes for a much more well-rounded student. Uh, they learn better, they concentrate better, they know how to work together better. I mean, all those things are, are in, in, in components behind the ability to make music. And, and just the sheer joy of doing something together, as simple as, as singing or playing instruments together. Uh, within the church, that what we've lost are, are many things. You know, the ability simply to open our mouths and sing as one is, is much less of a common thing that we do these days. There, there's some of it, but there's not anywhere near the same force behind that communal singing that like there used to be. Uh, and in our churches, one of the challenges becomes finding someone who can lead the singing. And there are many congregations that that have few musicians who are able to, to sit down at a piano or an organ and be able to lead a congregation. And so, I mean, those are, are critical losses in some ways, precisely because you need those kinds of forces to help to bind everyone's voices together so that there can be this, this unified activity of, of raising our voices together. So let's talk about the the very thing that we have been singing in the homes and in the congregations, Luther's hymns uh, and his hymn writing. What are some misconceptions about Luther's hymns and his hymn writing? Well, one would be that he was the uh, first one to, to provide hymns for congregations to sing. <laughs> uh, that, that's just not true. I mean, a thousand years before it was being done, actually being done by heretics in the church in the fourth century, uh, they, they were using music to try to, and, and, and pawn off their false teaching. And so some other um, Orthodox teachers in the Church felt, maybe we should write some hymns, too, if this is a useful way. They realized that the pedagogical value of, of music, the ability to help, again, to, to bring that text and that teaching in, into our hearts and, and minds. Uh, but Luther was one who certainly did revive that congregational singing. I mean, throughout the Middle Ages, worship was primarily in Latin, there were some concessions here and there that they could do a little bit of communal singing in their own mother tongue. So there were some German hymns in existence uh, at the time of the Reformation, not ubiquitous in, in use, but they were around, and Luther was aware of them. And in fact, Luther used some of those. He realized that if, if people already knew some of these melodies, well, let's make use of them. And what he did was to make them better, so to speak. And it's, that's usually the title at the top of the hymn on the page would simply say, Improved. <laughs> Uh, which was a, a way of indicating this had existed, but we've now improved it. Usually by just adding more stanzas is what Luther did, sometimes maybe adjusting what had been there in terms of the text so that it would be in line with the Reformation teaching. 
but, but he realized very quickly that this would be a key way to go about the task of, of helping to begin to, to get these clear and important teachings of the faith into the hearts and minds of the people. It wasn't going to come from just reading his books. Most people couldn't handle that. Uh, it would be through the hymns and through the catechism, and then certainly through his translation of the Bible into German. Those were the pillars, the hymns, the catechism, and the Bible that served then and have served to this present day as sort of the chief texts, the chief sources by which our, our teachings are, are propagated. Can you give some examples of how his, his hymns have influenced us in, uh, in our teaching today, in, in our hymnal, or how we teach today? Well, I mean, what Luther unleashes with, with the writing of hymns is just an amazing force that does still continue to have uh, a lot of power behind it. Uh, one of the things he did, and he recognized in a way I think other reformers at the time did not realize, was that, that there was a freedom here that, that one ought not to be afraid of. For example, uh, one of the other reformers, Ulrich Swingley, pretty much banned all music uh, in, in his Reformation efforts. And, and Luther realized that was just a little bit severe. Uh, John Calvin, another Reformed um, theologian, he limited hymn singing only to the singing of psalm texts. They would take a psalm and they would turn it into a hymn, so they would paraphrase the language so that there would be rhyme and the meter would fit. Uh, But he felt that it only could come from the Bible directly, from the psalm. Luther realized that, I mean, God had already given wonderful gifts, and, and why not make use of those? So he takes a few psalms and he actually does paraphrase them, turns them into hymns. He also takes some Latin hymns that have been sung for centuries by the monks in the monasteries, and he translates them into German, so that the wonderful teachings from those hymns could also then be, you know, passed on to succeeding generations. He takes um, other medieval hymns I mentioned before, these German hymns that existed before the Reformation. He improves them, and, and he also uses those models to write some of his own new hymns. And so he, what Luther does is, is, is he provides a much more comprehensive way of thinking about hymn singing. And, and because he does that, it allows room for all kinds of development over the ensuing centuries. And so that you will have composers in the next several hundred years taking these melodies and doing all kinds of marvelous adaptations of them. You have other poets inspired by this who are writing their own hymns of, of just all different types and styles. Whereas, you know, if you're writing only psalm paraphrases, well, you can only keep paraphrasing the same 150 psalms, and, and you kind of have, are limited. Where with the Lutheran Reformation and the Lutheran Chorale, it was just not the case. I mean, the, the flowering of, of, of in, you know, ingenious um, developments with, with composing, especially, are just an amazing experience to this day. So much so that, for example, you know, we now have what we call hymn festivals. Uh, where you will have a gathering of Christians just for the singing of hymns with some commentary that usually weaves thoughts together. And just amazing examples of how composers can take an ordinary hymn and just turn it into a wonderful work of art for participation by the congregation, by choirs, by instrumentalists. Uh, and and it, it just, there's no end to it, and there won't be an end to it, I don't think, because Christians have recognized that, that the hymn writing is, is just a marvelous vehicle for taking the Word of God putting it on our lips so that we can actually sing it and say it and, and can hold to it. We've talked a lot about the, the, the text or the lyrics. Let's talk about the music itself and the tunes. One of the, uh, one of the uh, I think a, a popular notion I've heard throughout 
uh, my college days and, and even today is where Luther got his tunes, um, that they were, uh, they were pub songs, they were bar songs. What was, what was going on in terms of music in Luther's day that, yeah. that uh, would help us understand whether or not that's true? Sure. Yeah, it was, it was an important time. We were talking about the Renaissance, and I mean, musical composition is undergoing some very interesting developments at that time. And what's going to come forth from that period of time is going to be much more the concept of singing, you know, note by note, like uh, the way the hymn moves forward, all the notes in the voices change with each note, with each word. That was different from what had existed earlier, and it's going to be one of the things that will invite congregational singing rather than just singing by the choir. Uh, For Luther's Latin hymns, in some cases, he took the Latin tunes and used those. So he was very astute because, I mean, Luther was quite the linguist, and, and his translation of the whole Bible is proof of that. But he's an artist, too. I mean, he was musically trained, and, and he understood, for example, that you couldn't just take a German text and put it underneath a, Latin, a melody that had used a Latin text before. Latin's a very different language. It sounds and flows differently. And so Luther realized sometimes you're going to have to make some careful adaptations of the melody so that it will fit with the German words. And, and so that becomes just a sensitivity that allows, again, for this um, whole endeavor to work and, and, and to make sense and not seem like something that just is not meant to fit together. But, you know, one of those misconceptions that you mentioned is, is you know, where were the sources of some of his tunes? I mean, he wrote some melodies of his own. I mean, we have some of those hymns we know are his melodies. He had other composers he was working with who were writing some of the melodies. But some of the melodies were older tunes that had been in existence. Uh, the myth about the bar songs, uh, however, has, has always been one that's been an interesting challenge. In fact, there was a, a professor some years ago who put out a challenge and said, I'll pay anyone 50 bucks who can find me proof that Luther used bar tunes in his hymns. Uh, no one ever took him up on the challenge. Uh, more likely, hey, the, the explanation that has, has come to, to be understood is that, is that there's probably this misunderstanding of a particular musical term there is in music a, a description of what's called the bar form, and this is part of this Renaissance development in, in musical composition, where you would have a melodic idea that is sung, and then it's repeated, and then the piece closes off with a new melodic idea. And so you have an, a, a melody that is repeated, and then you have something different. And, you know, and a person could immediately think of all kinds of hymns that do exactly that, where you sing a phrase, you repeat that phrase, and then you sing a little different phrase to finish off the hymn. That became known in musical historical studies as the bar form. And probably someone just thought, well, Luther's hymns are using that form, the bar form. Oh, he got them from the bars. That's the best explanation we probably have to that idea that that Luther was using um, bar melodies. But it's most likely not the case. In fact, we have one instance where one of his hymns that he had written, he was first identifying a particular tune that he wanted to have it sung to, and when he discovered that that tune was also being sung with some rather lewd text, he decided it would probably not be a good idea to sing that hymn, that melody anymore. And so he wrote a different melody for the text in order not to allow that confusion with, a, with, a, with a, a, another text that was perhaps not so sanctified. So the, there are some, some key things to understand when it comes to tunes, their origin, and, and their singability as well. What yeah. it? What about um, you know what? What was the the average person? You know, we talked about people not being a, a, as um, 
as musical today. What was it like in a typical family or in a congregation at Luther's time? You know, what was what was the average person capable of, or how were they familiar with singing? What what type of types of singing did they do? Sure. Well, you, you would have had. I mean, obviously, it was very much more an oral culture at that time. I mean, not everyone was literate. So not everyone can even read at that point, although that's beginning to change. And something as simple as providing the catechism is going to be an important tool to help allow people to start to learn. Um, one of Luther's great benefits and gifts was that through his translation of the Bible, he in a sense kind of, kind of consolidates the German language at that time, which existed in many different types of dialects. And through his Bible translation, everyone kind of starts to coalesce around a particular form of the German that will have a, a strong influence all the way to the present day, I believe, as I understand. Musically, I mean, they're going to learn by listening and then singing. Although in their hymnals, the melodies were included. And so it, it was not that they didn't think anyone could read the melodies. They, they, were, they would probably be taught how to learn them. Uh, but, but because, you know, they're much more attuned to just listening and, and learning that way, it probably did not take that long for, some, uh, for people to be able to grasp hold of a tune. Uh, again, some of the melodies already existed, and so there just was familiarity because they'd been sung before. But it, it was, I mean, then there's debates about this, too. I must say that in terms of how quickly did the hymns become established in the congregation. I mean, it's, it, the, the, the data is, is not always clear or very conclusive. Uh, in, in some instances, it seems that the congregations very quickly just latched on to these hymns and sang them with gusto. And other information suggests it took time, that, that people found this all to be quite new, and it was going to be something that would not, you know, as quickly be accepted as, as one might think. It, it was probably the case of both. It probably depended on the region. It may have depended on the, the leadership abilities of whoever was there to, to teach these hymns. Uh, certainly, I think Luther understood and recognized the importance of church musicians being trained well. He, he, knew, the, uh, he knew of, I should say, the leading composers of the day and, and spoke very highly of their accomplished abilities. But when it came to the writing of hymn melodies, it was, I dare say very much that I mean, the, the style of those melodies pretty much all veered in the, in the direction of just simple tunes that people can learn to sing. Uh, and some of those tunes are more difficult than others, there's no doubt of that, uh, which is the case for, for our hymns now. And, and a, a difficult tune would take some time to learn, but through persistence and through repetition, it can be picked up. Uh, a good example of that from our own modern era would be the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, that's hardly a simple tune to sing, but we've heard it so many times, we know how to sing it. Uh, and, and that goes sometimes for some favorite hymns of people that when you step back and say, if you've never heard this before, how hard would this be to learn? And you'd have to realize, it's a pretty tricky tune, but we've sung it so many times, we've got it down. And, and that worked the same way then as well. Some melodies could have been picked up quickly, others probably took some time to learn. But through persistence, through repetition, those tunes could become familiar and, and very friendly tunes to learn and sing. How does Luther go about writing the text of his hymns? What does he aim to do in the text? There is a good question. It depends, of course, on what type of a hymn he's writing. For example, he writes hymns for the various parts of the catechism. And in those cases, it's pretty evident he wants to teach. Uh, probably the most obvious example of that is the hymn on the Ten Commandments. These are the Holy Ten Commands. 
uh, very short little stanzas, only four lines each case. And so with each stanza, he addresses another commandment. And it mirrors almost exactly the way his, his explanations in the small catechism go, in that the first two lines of the hymn will say what we should not do, and the last two lines will say, but this is what we should do. Just as Luther in the small catechism will say we should fear and love God so that we do not do this or that, but that we do this. And so the hymns mirror that exactly for that Ten Commandment hymn. And each stanza then closes off with the phrase, Lord, have mercy, which is basically the way of saying, on our own, we cannot do this. So Lord, have mercy upon us. Uh, and, and that follows very much one of those medieval practices. The hymns would often conclude with that phrase, Lord, have mercy. So we have catechism hymns that are teaching the faith, and, and that his goal there especially is to kind of put the basic points of Christian doctrine onto their people's lips. Um, some of the hymns are seasonal hymns, so he'll have several hymns for Christmas and for Easter. And there he's wanting to put forward, you know, the basic story of salvation and what it is that, that God does and accomplishes for us in Christ. Um, <clears throat> the hymn text, in terms of the style of his writing, it's, it's a very colorful, vivid style of writing. Um, in fact, he, he loves to use all kinds of imagery in his, in his hymn text. And, 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 and as an example of that would be a study that was done some years ago by a, a Frenchman. I don't know if there are many Lutheran Frenchmen, but this, this man had an interest in Luther's hymns, and so he does this huge study. And he identifies, for example, that Luther talks about Jesus in, in, all over the place in his hymns, not surprisingly. And in fact, he counts it up 126 times that Christ is somehow referenced. But by his count, only 11 times does Luther use the name Jesus or Christ. In every other instance, so we're talking 115 instances, he uses some type of phrase or language to describe Jesus, whether he's God's son, whether he's our brother, as he's described in one hymn, or he comes at Christmas time. In the Christmas hymn, he says he comes as our guest. Um, in Luther's most, probably most important hymn, Dear Christians, One All Rejoice, uh, he, at one point, he's described as the bright jewel of the Father's crown. And so we talk about you know, the relationship between the Father and the Son being expressed with such picturesque language, to picture it as a crown that the God the Father wears, and Jesus is the bright jewel of that crown. And, and so the imagery is, is quite striking at times, and probably um, evidence of the fact that Luther was above all a biblical theologian, and primarily an Old Testament scholar. That was his primary field of study. And so, you know, recognizing the rich language that the prophets use in the Psalms, you find all these marvelous images. I get the suspicion that Luther just was allowing that language to seep through into his hymns. And not to be missed, perhaps, is the fact that, you know, when Luther writes two-thirds of his hymns, so about two dozen hymns in the span of a year. Between 1523 and 1524, he writes two dozen hymns. It's precisely that time he was still working pretty vigorously on his translation of the Old Testament of the Bible. And so I'm surmising there's no way to prove this, I don't think. But more than likely, very often, as he's working on a hymn, he's probably got part of a Bible translation in mind uh, and, and thinking of images that he finds in, in the Bible translations that he can also perhaps in some way or another bring into the hymn. Though, again, I don't think one can make a direct connection of that. It's pretty evident that Luther, and he loves imagery. He loves very stark, you know, Con, uh, colorful ideas that will, I think, grip the singer so that mm -hmm. they can remember those ideas. Do you have a, a, an all-time favorite Luther hymn? Do you, do you have a, a favorite hymn of his? 
Is that a fair uh, question uh, to ask that's a musician? That's not a fair question, of course. They're like, which child do you love more? <laughs> <laughs> I love them all. And, you know, so then you have to start naming all of them, <laughs> at least in some way. <laughs> I, I think the most, the most comprehensive of Luther's hymns would probably be Dear Christians, We're All Rejoice. It's a 10-stanza hymn. It basically kind of covers the whole of the salvation story. And um, it, it starts off with this invitation for us to rejoice together and sing of the wondrous deeds God has done. And then goes on immediately to have this two-stanza, very, very gut-wrenching confession. Fast bound in Satan's chains I lay, death brooded darkly o'er me. So you get this marvelous autobiography. I mean, you kind of hear Luther's own struggle with sin coming through in some ways, but put in, into the first-person voice. So we sing that, too. And then it launches into the, you know, goes back to the beginning of, of before the beginning of creation, when, when by mentioning that God had already planned for our salvation, and then begins to tell that story of how he sends the Son, who comes as our brother, um, he wears the servant's form, he takes the sin, gives us all his righteousness. All of that just comes through in marvelous fashion. But other hymns, too, just have some striking imagery and or turns of phrase that are, are just worth savoring as well. The Reverend Dr. Paul Grimm, Dean of Spiritual Formation and Dean of the Chapel at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, also author of Luther's Hymns, True or False, in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Dr. Grimm, thank you so much for uh, your insights, helping us dispel these myths uh, regarding Luther's hymn writing, and for being our guest today. Thanks very much. It was my pleasure. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu.